You're listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. For someone to explain. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 21 of the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. Before we get underway, I just want to uh, let you know that during this interview, both uh, Ben Darwin and myself had our our boys with us, so my, my boy's uh, four weeks old at the time of recording this, so you're going to hear uh, him squawking away a little bit, and uh, Ben's boy is, uh, I think, eight months old at the time of recording it, so you're going you're gonna to hear him uh, firing up. He just woke up from his nap, so he was pretty excited. I did my best to try and edit uh, most of it out, but end of the day, it's a, it's a nice little addition, and it's a nice little family touch to, to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast, so hope you enjoy the show, and I'll see you at the other end. Cheers. All right, welcome to episode number 21 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and I'm joined today with uh, Ben Darwin. Ben played Super Rugby with the Brumbies uh, and is a former Wallaby who received 28 caps before retiring after a neck injury. After retirement, he went into coaching and uh, had a stint with Norths in the Sydney Shoot Shield uh, and then went on to roles with uh, the Western Force, uh, the Shining Arcs in Japan, uh, the Melbourne Rebels, and then went back to... Japan for a stint with uh, Suntory. Um, ben went on. Ben then went on to start uh, the company Gainline in 2013, and is involved in developing predictive models, presenting research finding findings, and consulting with clients. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, Ben. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, I hope you don't mind the baby on my life. Yeah, well, we've, we're both holding babies right now, so it's uh, <laughs> so yeah, a bit of your backstory there. How's um, what was what was the coaching journey like for you after after retirement and uh, to to where you are now? I think I think the thing for me with retirement was in a way because I was injured, it was easier because I wasn't being told as a player I wasn't I was no longer needed. Yeah, yeah. so that was. It made it, it made it kind of nice in that way. Um, and, and in fact, in retirement, you become a far better player than you were in reality. <laughs> um, I, I, I think one of the things you look at retrospectively was I probably jumped into coaching a little bit too early, particularly being a head coach of a club, but yeah. you don't know that until you experience it. And then I think you realise too that as a, as a, you know, there's always favouritism awarded to ex-players, mm. um, but as a coach, I didn't really know what I was doing. And the way I liken it to it is that, is that coaching, um, you know, playing is like driving a car and coaching is like being a mechanic. They're entirely different skill sets yeah. and entirely different, different levels of understanding. So um, I jumped into coaching there and I was coaching in the Western Force, um, but I didn't really take a step back and think about how to do it until I took a job with, in Japan as an assistant coach. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot a lot easier. I think I found the force difficult one. I was only 27, 28, so I was pretty early. Yeah. Um, and you know, you're dealing with players older than yourself. Some, some I think, were for six or seven years older than myself. Um, and it was just a probably a step too far. And then, secondly, um, uh, being a head coach of a club, it's almost like when you're the head coach, there's almost no limit to what you can worry about. Yeah. It's just you have to think about everything. So um, that was a that was a lot to take on. So. Coaching in Japan with NTT was great, really rewarding. Um, also, obviously, just a fantastic experience living in the country. Um, and then came back, took a job with the Melbourne Rebels as an analyst, um, which I'd started to do in Japan. Um, and I actually started that because when the GFC hit, I thought to myself, some clubs are not going to be able to afford 
a coach and an analyst. So maybe if I did both, that would be quite handy. Um, and that's exactly what I took on with the Rebels. I did a bit of coaching and analysis. I did that for two years and then, um, and then got a job with Suntory, took that on for a year. Um, that wasn't as enjoyable as the first one. It was, in fact, really, I actually went quite stressful because the team went undefeated through the season. So it was this constant thing sitting over the team of, you know, will we lose a game? Um, and, uh, and, um, I, so I, I left that after a year and then came back and then started game line. So I've had, had di- lots of differing experiences with my coaching, but I think through all of it, you know, I've had, you know, seasons where I've won everything and seasons where I've lost everything. And I think that that's where I started to realize that other things were probably at play. Yeah. You're never as bad as you think you are. You're never as good as you think you are. You look at Eddie Jones's career with, you know, with England, how well he's done and with the Brummies, how well he did. And then he was at the Reds and how badly that went. Um, you know, and he didn't change fundamentally too much through that experience. So um, that's that's how I started to understand there are other results and yeah, no, it's a, it's a, yeah, and we'll get onto that later with uh, with your work with Gainline. It's a it's a fascinating idea for sure. And you know, there's so many, uh, you know, I suppose you talked a lot about being a head coach. There's so many uncontrollables and controllables, and you know, being able to to put one aside and then focus on the other, that must be a massive challenge for, for, for head coaches in high-pressure situations. Yeah, and I think it takes a certain type of personality um, to be a certain type of coach. You know, I found I was actually a better um, foil in a way, you know, as a coach. I'm not, I'm not a particularly aggressive person. I think sometimes a head coach needs to have a real good sense of authority and control about them. And in some ways, I was a good assistant coach because I could kind of balance out mm-hmm. Um, what the team needed, and so in Japan, I worked with Shannon Fraser, and that worked really well. He was kind of the, you know, you play good cop, bad cop in a way without being too, um, you know, uh, you can't be too nice to the players. You can't listen to them too much, but um, you know, if you can find a way to, to balance the relationships in your group, and there's a if there's a good dynamic which we had, um, that that I found that to be easier for me as a coach. Yeah, for sure. All right, so going back to your like your 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 playing uh, career, like sticking sticking to like coach philosophies and things like that. You're you're in like a real heyday for for both the Wallabies, Wallabies and uh, the Brumbies, and you experienced uh, probably two different, very different coaches in Rob McQueen and Eddie Jones. What what were some of the differences with those coaches, and what were some of the things you really kind of called upon from what you learned from those guys for for your own coaching? I think with Rod, you know, one of the things that that he did. Uh, was, was successful and people talk a lot about with Rod was the notion of man management mm-hmm. and when I look now almost retrospectively at Rod I look at what they had with that group um, in terms of the way they were set up and, and, and the causes for success um, you know and the one thing Rod did definitely provide was stability and, yeah. and um, you know if you look at the previous era they had under Greg um, you know that Wallaby team I think on average they changed the coach one once sorry brought in a new player once per game. So when you're doing that, when you've got that constant change trying to find the answer, um, I think that did create a number of challenges for them, whereas Rod was really about saying, let's set up the right environments. And there was a change in how he set up the Brumbies, a change in terms of how he set up the Wallabies. With Eddie, Eddie, Eddie was really about the on-field um, aspect and how the game was going to be played. And he was about... He was about changing the way the game was played, mm-hmm. um, and and certainly role identification as well. You know, 
he, he would say to me, never touch the ball, never pass. It's not your job, you know. So there was a bit of that. With him, but that was the style of rugby we were trying to play. And that yeah. was, you know, we were, as he talked about at the time, he was trying to play NFL on the run. It's, it was There was a pattern, but at the same time, there was the ability to ad-lib and to, um, to change and adapt. But he was certainly um, extremely um, uh, diligent and uh, extremely good at getting a turnaround in performance. I, you know, I... If you look at the ability for him to change the way he, the way Japanese rugby was not only perceived but performed, oh, unreal. his ability with with England as well, um, you know, shows there's some um, there's some there's some pretty strong traits there in terms of his ability to get control of a program and to deliver a program and get you know as we would call it maximum capacity out of a program. Yeah, no, it's really interesting, and yeah, he's definitely had success where he's gone, and then. Yeah, the interesting part was his time at Reds too. It was fascinating that that didn't actually happen there. But no, maybe we can talk about that later. But tell you what, I, I mean, generally, I think that, as I said with Eddie, I think I said this in an article a couple of months ago. Yeah. You know, he's an agent of change, and he's got a way of doing things, and it either breaks him or breaks the team. Right. Uh, well, it normally doesn't break him, actually. It pretty much either breaks breaks the team, and and you know, when you've got a, an England group as mature as they are right now. They could deal with that, yeah. whereas maybe the Reds at the time was a young group, and they yeah, just they, couldn't, were. Yeah. they couldn't deal with that. And um, you know, we know he's he's a pretty strong disciplinarian, and for some guys that just didn't it just didn't hit home, didn't work. But right. um, and also that it was pretty injury ravaged year too, from memory. Right, right, yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right. So, what about your, your personal um, when when you're a scrum coach? What's your personal kind of Coaching philosophy and and how do you go about your business when you when you when you had these new roles and new groups? How did you attack that? Um, I, I think that that I think certainly um, the notion is as is, is I've had different different people I've I've had to deal with. So for example, with the Melbourne Rebels, you know you've got a whole different bunch of people coming together. So the number one thing there is about alignment of understanding. What are we actually trying to get done? Mm-hmm. And alignment of technique, you know, are we all using the same? So that was pretty much took up the whole kind of um, first, you know, period of time. Um, the other thing too is that the, that the techniques that I was interested in using are not as applicable now uh, because of the way the scrum is obviously set up and, yeah. and contact rules and things like that. You know, when I first started scrummaging, it was all about the hit, particularly for the tighter. You hit as hard as you can. If you win the hit, you win the battle, you win the, you win the battle, you win the ball. Um, now it's about uh, it's not about the contact. It's about the wrestle and the technique, and the ability to keep your feet and to load load pressure. Um, so uh, uh, you know, certainly whatever I might have used back then may may not be um, may not be the whole story because it's like I said, it's, it's after the point of contact. Sorry, Elroy's just waking up. Um, he's a noisy little bugger. Um, my my, I, th- I think where I've been successful as a coach has been more within the area of the front row and getting the setup right. I think where I've had my challenges is the back five. You're right. You know, I've always been so heavy on, on you know, effort through back five. You know, um, you, start to, you start to notice, um, you know, what you do in training isn't necessarily what happens in games. You might do, you know, 20, 30 scrums during a training session and the back five are all on and then in game time it's all eyes up and focusing on the opposition and so it's trying to transfer um, that effort in training actually into game time 
Um, and I had a really big focus actually from a scrum perspective on saying to the players, you know, I'm not looking for tight heads at the scrum because that's that's not it's hard to do. You know, yeah. you're going to have um, different understandings from the referee, and you're not going to be able to always get a straight feed. What I was looking for was turnovers within one phase. Um, and I actually class that to my players as a tight head. So if you can put enough pressure on the scrum time, you're going to get your flankers set up with an opportunity to go hard at the ball yeah. or you'll be able to limit their resources at the next breakdown. And so if you can get that turnover, that's a win for us. That's a win for our scrum. And I found that that focus actually made sure the guys gave that effort for the full 12 or 15 seconds because even you know if we hadn't won the ball, I didn't want them to stop working. And I think that really made them think about, okay, how can we limit what they get so that we can then get the turnover the next phase? Yeah, I really like that. That's a, that's a really good way of looking at it. And yeah, it's, it's also flicks them into that mode of, okay, what's my next job? The scrum's over. Now now let's, let's, let's get on with the next thing. Yeah, and I think also it gave the flankers an understanding that we have to keep pressure on the scrum because that will enable us to get opportunities further down the track. Yeah, that's great. Okay, cool. And if you were coaching the scrum now with some of the new law changes and uh, interpretations, what do you, do you see any kind of coaching little angles that, that you might employ now that you didn't in the past? Yeah. Um, when I was at the Melbourne Rebels, actually, I met with a guy who was a Greco-Roman wrestler. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've really struggled to do is to transfer, you know, the, the old thing is, you know, transferring your understanding into them but letting them do it in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I've always found it hard to get guys to understand how to control the neck, control the shoulders of the opposition, which is where you win the battle, you know, in the front row. And uh, when I spoke to this guy, a Greco Roman wrestler, I was explaining to him how a tight head scrummage is, and he understood how to control the neck faster than anyone I've ever done it with. Wow. And he great? said to me, if you, if you do this, this is how you change the body, because, you know, if you turn the head, the body will adjust, um, and, the, and the hips will adjust, so you can change your ankles that way. And he said, that's all we do in Greco Roman wrestling. We're, we're, we're focusing the body through the neck, um, through the head. So um, what I would do is, is particularly now, if the battle is after the point of contact, is actually work with the front row with Greco-Roman wrestlers and get them instead of involved in the program um, because they seem to have such a good understanding and also they, they have great strength, great understanding of how to develop strength um, in how to control, um, you know, your opposite man and... Um, and I think if you can do that, um, you're going to be you're going to have a huge advantage of scrum time because if if the hips aren't aligned to the props, the hips aren't going to be aligned to the locks, and there's no ability for transfer pressure into the opposition. Yeah, uh, that's great. Like uh, I I do um, I run an academy, um, and we actually invited in a wrestling coach this year, so it's uh, it's 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 awesome to see. Like it's just something different for the players too. It's uh, they they get they get energized out of it, and it's totally transferable into the all contact aspects of the game and yeah like i think i think like the resources are out definitely in north america for sure there's there's, there's wrestling resources everywhere in north america yeah. yeah if you can tap into that that's huge all right so you you had a couple of roles there like uh where you, you're trying you're balancing uh video analysis and scrum coaching how did you find that that's a that's it's a pretty unique uh position you got you put yourself in a couple of times yeah, there's actually one other guy in um, in New Zealand, which is um, uh, Mike Cron's son, who's the okay. Hurricane and Scrum Coach. So he does that uh, not only for the Canes, but also in Japan. Right. Uh, but uh, it's it's about really um, delegation of time and delegation of what's important. I think mm-hmm. 
as an analyst in the first year I did I just tried to do everything um, that I thought was going to be needed and then by the second year I had an assistant which was great who then ended up doing the job later when I went to Japan so um, it was just a it was just a case then of just understanding um, what was required to be honest with you I, I actually enjoy the analysis um, more than I enjoy the coaching because with analysis, everything's within your control, and with yeah. coaching, it's not your control. So, <laughs> the only thing that fails is computer systems, and then you can blame them anyway. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, whereas with 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 coaching, so much goes on. You know, effort doesn't necessarily equal reward. Yeah, and um, I suppose it would have taken you a bit of time there to 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 realize, okay, what's important and what's not. What what like because you can drown drown coaches and players with all kinds of data and. Uh, Things to things to focus on and what not to focus on. The like thinning that out must be must be part of the challenge too. Yeah, I think so. I think too. Um, you know, it was a case of certainly I understood as an analyst, having been a player, that you can't complicate the message mm-hmm. for players. You can't give more than three messages in any, any game or anything like that. Um, so it was really I was drowning the the the, um, the coaches in analysis um, but for me too I was learning from an IT perspective um, just how to run systems and networks and things like that so that's that was extremely helpful but it didn't really expand my rugby knowledge for the first couple of months and when you're starting up an organization you know you're literally sitting around it you know I've done it twice once with the force once with the rebels where you, as an organization you're just a bunch of people sitting around a table yeah you know with a piece of paper and a pen saying right well, what do we need um, you know, we hadn't even signed, you know, a lot of players at that point. So as an analyst, one of the first things I was trying to do was to say, okay, how do we get footage of these players we want to look at? And do we, you know, do we co- how do we code them? How do we give, how do we do comparative data um, between the athletes? You know, with different, how do you look at someone in the ITM Cup versus someone playing in the Aviva Premiership? Um, and, and, you know, just trying to, you know, the one thing people send you as an analyst and as you're recruiting is they send you highlights packages. Yeah. Which is like, we're not interested in highlights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in work rates. And so you can't pick work rates off highlights packages. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so that was that was one of the first things, just getting the right footage, um, collecting it together and um, and then and then finding a way to code it and to be able to ratify the information and then, and then hand it over. But probably the one... The, the, probably the recruitment of the Rebels I was the most uh, involved in uh, was Scott Fugasaw, um, yeah. the and, and trying to run comparisons of him to other players in the UK and stuff. And I think they actually got that. That was that was Hilly actually his decision in the end. But I think that's probably one of the ones they got um, they got really right. And he's been um, he's been pretty successful for the uh, for the for the Rebels uh, so far. Yeah, for sure. No, he's a he's a regular feature and uh, you know a real hardworking, grinding kind of player. Okay, so after after that, you you then uh, branched out and you started uh, Gainline. What's uh, so? What's a general kind of description of the company and and what's its what's its goal? So it, it started out as something entirely different, and it actually came out of my experience with the Rebels. Was I was um, looking at all the data around the world of players who were coming off contract. So I was just basically collecting information on league and union players, saying, okay, when are these players available? How long are they signed until? And the idea was to sell that information to clubs around the world, saying if you want to buy a flanker, here is all the flankers off contract. Right. Um, but as I went through that process, I started to notice certain inform- certain things about clubs and the way they were put together um, that was really of interest to me. Um, so, like if you look at say how the Highlanders or the 
or the blues are put together comparative to the Crusaders in terms of um, wow, uh, in terms of the way um, they align their players, the player history, where are they getting them from, um, and and uh, and the level of success that was giving them. Yeah. Uh, and and I start, you know, I was looking at notions of shared history, also. Um, you know, when you recruit players, what's the impact of it? So I started to build some um, ideas around that and I uh, got, a, got a phone call from a guy called um, Pat Ferguson who's actually going to Harvard University next year. He's much smarter and much younger than I am um, and he's an economist and he just said all this stuff. He, he said all this stuff's been done before but it's actually been done more in economic modelling around HR of right. companies, transference of talent and how transferable talent is. Um, and one thing we say in all the sports we look at is the player you see is not the player you get. Um, and we've certainly found that, that, that uh, you know, there's this kind of obsession around the world with the notion of money ball, um, you know, using data to recruit people. But mm-hmm. someone said to me once, uh, I was actually involved in um, uh, rugby league, saying the data that they get in the NRL has absolutely no relevance to the data in state of origin. So how they go in NRL games is not going to be reflected at all in state of origin in terms of performances. So if that's the case, what's at play? What's causing that? Um, and uh, and not, we're not just talking over any specific coach, we're talking at years. So as I started to get this understanding around maybe talent isn't entirely portable, it's not you don't just play one way at one team and just play the next at another, is that maybe you can measure teams by that scenario? How, how do all your players sit in that area? Um, how long have they been together? Where did they play before they got there? Did they play previously together? Um, so we found ways to measure that, and then we started taking it across different sports. And the first sport we looked at was the NBA, and we found the data was coming back exactly the same as it was in the HR departments of, of um, stockbroking firms. It was bizarre, like wow. the same. And so we then looked at basketball. We looked at rugby union, rugby league, AFL, um, uh, uh, soccer. Um, and then uh, we started working with a company called Prozone and they we started talking to a few clubs and, and um, they started putting us into EPL clubs. And so um, we started to have conversations with people around um, what's, what's important and what's, um, what's just noise in terms of results. And um, it's, it's been really, really interesting and we've met some amazing clients and some amazing people. That, that's um, that's got to have some serious implications then with uh, in the field of uh, talent ID then. Yeah, I, I think so. It's it's um, one of the one of the aspects to around the talent ID is saying what what's there's, there's two parts. If a player is in a team, what type of team is he in, and therefore what is he going to look like? Um, in, it's interesting in rugby league. Sometimes they'll call it the Melbourne Storm Mirage. Right. Is that you, you? You take a player out of Melbourne Storm, and what you uh, what you saw when he was there, because they're so well put together, and they're playing off such good. They're playing such good football that, uh, and they're playing off you know Cronks, um, you know Billy Slater and uh, Cameron Smith. Is that they're going to be running very good lines? They're going to appear to be very very effective. And then, and then when they come to you, they're all of a sudden dealing with different halves, different spine, different defensive setups, um, and they underperform. So, um, 
if if you are if you do look at a player, how that team is set up, and and that's what we do is we measure how those teams are set up. And you can say, okay, we really need to one change your expectations, and vice versa. If a guy, if a team is not well set up, you know, there's so much more potential on that guy. You know, in terms of the long term, um, the, the long term future, in terms of how much of an improvement you're going to be able to get out of that player. So that's that's one of the parts. So the second part is is that um, how well players adapt to environments is also about how well set up or how cohesive the team is. So we looked at, for example, the football academies in the UK and how, you know, the, the strength of the academy doesn't really give a notion of how well their players are going to go. Mm-hmm. It's really about the team they're going into. So Manchester City don't really use their academy players. They don't really come through the system. They tend to get farmed off to other clubs. And if they've got one of the best academies in the world with all the facilities, what's going on there? And it's really about how the top team is set up and how um, uh, cohesive that environment is and therefore how difficult it is for people to, to be absorbed in those environments. It's like going into an office. If everyone in an office knows what they're doing, you're going to be able to know what you're doing. If everyone in the office is like in chaos, it's extremely difficult for the person to try to settle into that environment. No, it's fascinating stuff. And so, so how do you, like if you're working with a new client, say a sporting team, how do you, how do you get your data set? Do you, do you use video a lot? Do you, do you go back through uh, previous video of previous players from other clubs and, and, and piece it together? What's, uh, what's, no, the, what's we, the process we really, there? We really take histories, and, and for the professional clubs we work with, all those histories are publicly available. It's just how we circulate those histories in the mix. Um, it's not really about the data of the individual other than their, their you know, games played, stuff like that. It's really about saying, um, okay, where have they played? What's their history? Um, how many games do they play? Um, do they play with other people? Um, and that can give you a real, a real sense around the current mix of the group. And, and what we do with the club is we'll go and look at every, um, like, so let's say, for example, we took an NRL club in Australia, we'd go back 20 or 30 years in the history and say, here is every player you've ever signed and here is the impact of that signing. Here is every player that's come out of your academy. Here's how long they played for them had in each point of your history and here is its impact on performance. And basically when the cohesion goes up, the performance goes up. Um, there's also, of course, um, there's, there's the level of talent that you're buying, but money is extremely inefficient. And particularly with non-cohesive teams, you can spend, you know, insane amounts of money and still not be successful. You look at Toulon this year. You know, Toulon's been successful, yeah, but they actually had to build that cohesion over a couple of years and that's gone this year and then sure. they've kind of struggled a bit. So um, it's, it's, it's really about understanding um, what are the dynamics, what's the impact of those dynamics. Those, the impact mostly is in defence, how a team defends. They need to understand each other to be able to defend well. Um, and then and also with a club will say, here is where you're going. So here's what your expectations should actually be. And oftentimes those expectations are totally different. We had a super rugby team that expected to make the finals uh, or win the comp. Um, and we were saying, no, we think you're probably going to win somewhere between three to five games, which is exactly what happened for them. So um, that was a, a bit of a shock to the system um, for them. And, and it's hard too because you're actually saying the decisions you have made have led you to this point and it's not going to be an easy build out of it. It's hard. It's you, you, we say you can build cohesion slowly, but you can't. You can destroy it really quickly, but it takes a long time to come back. It's like it's like climbing up a mountain. You can only climb it slowly, but you can go down it real fast. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, it's a, it's amazing. Um, and are, are you are you solely in sporting teams? You're branching out into business as well. 
Um, we, we just started to get some interest into business. Um, we, we kind of want to do sport well first. Yeah. And it's, it's handy analogies. The thing with business is that it's very hard to get data on head to head competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get, you know, internal success, but it's, um, you know, you don't really get the same ability to get a weekly score. You make this change, here's what the impact is. That's the great part about sport. Um, you know, you can actually see it playing out before you. Um, and so, so uh, the more understanding we get how, to groups, how groups of people work together in sport, the easier it's going to be able to, for us to transfer that across into business. But certainly, um, this is really about the dynamics of how um, people work together and, and the, if the sport doesn't, and I was quite surprised, I thought the sports would be, you know, some sports are it's more uh, relevant to others, but we look at Olympic sports and some of the same data, it's not really that important, it's really about the understanding of the group and the dynamic the group has and, and um, the, there's a, you know, people use the word culture, I don't really like the word culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, um, it's going it's going to have an impact on the level of understanding you have over what your roles are and the, the longer that you have together or the more understanding you have uh, the less polluted understanding that you have we probably call it um, the, the 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 simpler things are going to be and the more you can deal with stressful situations probably the biggest thing is dealing with stress dealing with complexity under duress yeah right and and so so when you when you join a club when you when you sign up with a club and and work with them. Are you there? You're pretty hands-on with it. You're you're there on a on a weekly basis, or how how's that work? Yeah, the first thing we do is um, we we do what's called a performance audit. So we basically once we sign on, we say we'll see you in ten weeks, and we come back with a report ten weeks later. Yeah, it takes us a long time. We've got a, a lot of researchers um, that, that go away, and and um, we we come back with like a sixty or seventy page report on the club, and then we and the, and then we really deliver it to the upper echelons of the organization. We try to make it through the board or the you know, performance directors mm-hmm. um, because if you don't create permission to set up a club in the right way, there's no point telling coaches because every coach wants to do it, create a dynasty. It's just whether the organization's got the patience to do it. Yeah. And so we, we really try to, to, to put it at the top ends of the club um, and, uh, and then say, okay, here's where you were, here's where you are, here's where you're going. And then um, we've found now, I think we wrote a list yesterday, there's 27 different ways you can improve cohesion in a team. Um, and so we, we, uh, we then say, um, okay, if you want to improve it, we can then work with you to improve it. And that's when you become a bit more hands-on and you really start to drive down into what the systems are at play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are a whole different bunch of things available to you as a club that you can use um, and, and it all depends on the competition. Like the EPL is extremely difficult to have a Super Rugby setup. Super Rugby is really lopsided as a competition in terms of some clubs have it really lucky and some clubs have it really unlucky. Yeah, the Western Force would be one of them for sure with the, the, the sheer distance they have to travel. That's, that's one part of it. But, um, you know, they are lucky and they've got a, an, NRC, an NRC club. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. It's Spanish to other clubs. Okay, cool. And if people wanted to find more out about Gainline and how to get in contact with you, where 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 should they go? Um, Gainline.biz. Yeah. Um, uh, is the, is our website. Um, everything's on there. Um, the, the other thing that we're starting to do is just is just speaking. So we we've, we've been doing a university here in Melbourne just on the subject. 
Yeah. Because um, it adds a different dynamic uh, to people's kind of level of understanding, or almost a, a kind of like a bit of a language to, to how teams are put together. Um, and then, uh, and then obviously, if they're interested in us uh, having a conversation with their team, we're happy to do that. Okay, great. All right, well, we always end the show with the same uh, four questions. When, when you were a kid growing up, uh, who, was your, who was your favorite rugby player going around? Uh, Phil Fens, no question. Yeah. 91, he was my hero. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's, um, you, you would have had a bit to do with him then in your playing time. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I played against him actually for, um, you sort of, you have to pinch yourself when you're playing against the heroes. But um, <laughs> uh, I played against him when, uh, for North against Randwick and he just went into town in our scrum. He was fantastic. But um, uh, the thing with Kearns, you know, people say never meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. Kearns, he's not one of those guys. He's actually a very nice guy, very, very um, good rugby man. Yeah, no matter what anyone says about him, I love his commentary. I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he, he's, he, he keeps the focus back on the forwards, which is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, and current players now, who are you, who are you a fan of? I, it's funny because I've, we, we look at so many, so many sports now, and I actually can't remember uh, when you emailed me the other day what answer I gave for this, so I'm going to just go away. You, you correctly answered David Pocock. Oh, Poey, yeah, I think, I think, well, I'll tell you the reason I, I like Poey is we did some data on guys in the breakdown uh, a couple of years ago, and, and one of the things we did was um, we looked at the number, of, the, the number of turnovers guys were getting at the breakdown, yeah. and, and I think at this stage he'd either just transferred to the Brumbies or he'd been at the force or the data we did, and the thing with Poey was it wasn't about how many turnovers he was getting, it was how many turnovers per entry to the ruck. So, and George Smith was very similar. So, so Guy might be getting nine turnovers, but he's entering the ruck 30 times defensively in order to get those turnovers. Yeah, right. Whereas Poey and George Smith might get seven, but they, get, they only make 11 entries to the ruck. Ah, that's awesome. And so, so what, what it really meant to me was they were really smart about looking at their opportunities, seeing where they could make a difference. And if they're only making 11 defensive entries to the ruck, it means they can be effective elsewhere around the field. Absolutely. Yeah, so so I think that was probably the thing that made that was really impressive to me. And the only guy I really got close to him, actually, interestingly, was Hodgson. Right. Um, right. Force. A lot of the other flankers were just huge amounts of effort. That was my um, my thing with Pocock. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, that's really interesting, and yeah, definitely you can, as a as a coach, you can you can grab little snippets of video and show it to your players, and you know, show them how effect how an effective seven works. Uh, I did some stuff with. Um, like some video of Sam Warburton and I watched like eight phases for him and he didn't go into a ruck once and then on the ninth phase he turned it over and he made, he might have made one tackle in all those phases. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the good flank is actually almost existing behind the defensive line. Mm. They're kind of like sort of snooping for those opportunities. They're not necessarily, um, you know, they'll start in the line but as soon as a breakdown occurs they'll jump in behind, look where the chance are and they go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, and uh, so what about coaches? Who's a, who's a high-profile coach that you you like what they're doing? Uh, yeah, I, I like Mark Hammett because um, that he's had at, at Japan, and I know they lost by 90 on the weekend, but, mm. you know, the, the ability to put something together with the ridiculously short period of time that they've had. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and to be reasonably competitive as well as the travel they're dealing with. Um, and, you know, I, I like what he, he did with... Um, what he was trying to do with the Canes. You know, I really like him as a guy and I like the way he thinks as a coach. It doesn't always, it always, isn't always effective. You know, it didn't work for him at the Canes, but he set that team up 
for a lot of the success they're having now. And I think sometimes coaches coach for other people. And, and you know, the way the Canes are set up now is just, they're, they're, you know, the way we look at them, you know, the young now, they've got a great feeder system, is that they could be as effective as the Crusaders next couple of years if they continue down that path and they do it the right way. Yeah, and they showed a bit of that against, uh, against Melbourne on the weekend too, huh? 100%. You, you look at the way they've improved from round 1 to round 10. You, know, you see it with young guys. Young guys learn fast and they're learning fast. Yeah, great. Okay, and who's, uh, who's someone uh, digging away in the trenches who, who deserves a shout-out for the work they're doing to, for rugby? Uh, well, I was going to say my son's coach, Michael, who's coaching the under-sixes. Yeah, very yeah, coach. absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, so Shannon, Shannon Fraser, who I coached with in Japan, actually, um, with, at NTT, he's now at Roundwick doing first grade. Um, he's done a great job there. He's doing things in the right way. He also coached at Fiji uh, for 7 and 11, and he was part of that success there in 2007. Yeah. Um, under, under difficult circumstances, you know, you take on an Islander job, and there's issues with the off-field, there's issues with the players, mm. there's issues with particularly the level of the professionalism from a management perspective. Yeah. Um, it can be difficult, but they kind of got through that, and they challenged the Fijian players in terms of, um, you know, Fiji had a history of kind of effort at the World Cup without reward, and they said, well, that's not, that's not what we want to do anymore. Let's actually take this on and, and, and challenge people's conceptions about um, the, or misconceptions about this team, and, and, and I think they did a, a pretty good job. It didn't work in 11 as well, um, but, uh, um, you know, Fiji has huge challenges in terms of, um, you know, how the, players, how the players come into the system, so... I think he did a pretty great job there, and, and is unnoticed. And, and he's a too. He's a, he's a coach that wasn't a professional player too. And I always feel for those guys because they, they don't get the opportunities they should. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. All right, well, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show, Ben, and uh, it's been a really interesting chat. And uh, I think a lot of people will be checking out Gainline and uh, watching what you guys are doing with interest. And uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Awesome. All right, thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us on Twitter at RugbyCoachSCNR or via the website at TheRugbyCoachesCorner.com. Until next time, Keep sharing ideas to make the game better.